0: Bird Note presents.
1: Oh my God. Oh my God. We have a ton of birds.
0: (laughs) Every spring, millions of birds, representing over 500 species, strike off from sites in South America and the Caribbean, hugging the eastern coast of the U.S. as they make their way to breeding spots in Canada and Greenland.
1: Ah, yeah, listen to them. A noisy guy. Whoop, Did you see that? One guy away.
0: The birds are traveling the Atlantic Flyway, one of four major north south routes for migratory birds in the Americas. And all along the way, they need to stop for food, water, and rest. I'm Ari Daniel, and in this episode of Threaten, we go to Block Island, Rhode Island, a key stopover site along the Atlantic Flyway. We'll get to know master bird bander Kim Gaffett. Kim is the latest in a line of women citizen scientists whose volunteer work on Block Island has instilled a powerful culture of bird study and conservation, stretching back over a hundred years. This story comes to us from
2: producer Ben James. Hey there, Ben. Hey, Ari. So to get to understand Kim's work a little more, let's try to put you in the mind of a songbird. How about a white-throated sparrow? A sparrow. Perfect. Sure. Except you're a pipsqueak. You're the weight of, like, three marshmallows. And here you are at dawn, too far off the coast. You've flown all night, and you are spent. Now, it's just you and the Atlantic Ocean. Oy. Let's face it, Ari, you wouldn't be the first wind-tossed songbird lost to the ocean depths. But now you sense a dark splotch in the distance. You close in on this island. You're about to land when... Wait, wait, what happened to me? Um, you're caught in a net and, like, flailing a bit. You're not hurt, but you're definitely trapped. But now, here's a voice, fingers, a calming hand untangling you.
1: So right now I'm trying to pry open its little sparrow bill with my thumbnail.
0: She's trying to pry open my bill, Ben. That
2: doesn't sound very calming. I know, I know, but she's really good at this. Just listen.
1: See that? It's got it stuck in its mouth. I can't just pull that out because their tongue is a really interesting shape. It points backwards, so the tongue looks like a spear that would have backward-pointing flanges.
2: Kim Gaffet's in her mid-60s, rubber boots, the cuffs of her pant legs wet, a chilly late April morning, the mist nets still a bit damp from the dew.
1: People say, they always want to know, what's your favorite bird? well, my favorite bird is the one that's in my hand right then. And so right at this moment, my favorite bird is white-throated sparrow.
2: She holds seven or eight cloth bags, the kind you might carry a bunch of radishes in, only she's got an eastern towhee, a sparrow, a couple robins. They're pretty chill, the birds, not harmed at all in the handling. And none of them are very big, but they seem like giants compared to...
3: Oh, do we
1: have here? Alrighty, this is a kinglet. Perfect name for the tiniest bird we get. The male has red in its crown hidden in there. You see that? Beautiful.
2: That is just gorgeous. So that is the, hey, look at that the male
1: color. ruby crown kinglet. All right, now we're talking spring migration.
2: There are about a half dozen birds just in this single stretch of net, all of them likely blown in overnight on a strong wind from the southwest. At this point in the spring, it's exactly that sort of wind that Kim is waiting for.
1: All right. I'm Kim Gaffett, and I'm the master uh, bander here at the Black Island Bird Banding Station at Clayhead.
2: Bird bander, naturalist for the Nature Conservancy, former school bus driver, and former first warden, which is kind of like the mayor of this one of a kind municipality, the smallest town in the smallest state in the U.S. Block Island, Rhode Island, 11 square miles of shrubland, dunes, freshwater ponds, and weathered, gray-shingled houses. It's kind of the shape of a pork chop, the island, or maybe a teardrop, depending on your mood. One school, a thousand or so year-round residents who, in the summer, are totally outnumbered by a daily swarm of tourists on bikes and rented mopeds. zipping from the bars along the harbor down Corneck Road to Town Beach. The vast majority of these summer visitors will never meet Kim Gaffet, though they are more than welcome on her many public nature walks or even at one of her bird banding sessions.
1: If I have a chance to put a bird in your hand, I'm going to do it.
2: The islanders depend on the tourists, at least financially, but in many ways they live in worlds divided. Kim is an islander through and through.
1: First of all, I grew up here and I went to school here. And I always say I was, you know, I was in the top six of my class, of which there were six kids.
2: (laughs) As a child, Kim traveled to the mainland only twice a year.
1: We lived in a very tiny house. We lived without running water. Um, And sometimes that house got pretty small when you're 15 and 16 years old. And I would have some pretty epic arguments with my father. But where were you going to go? <laughs> this, not, this, you, you can't run away, because huh? the boat only leaves once a day.
2: <laughs> like Kim, Edith Blaine was born and raised on Block
3: Island. I'm Edith Littlefield Blaine, and uh, I just had my 92nd birthday this, a few, um, couple of weeks ago. Never thinking to be this age, really.
2: Back when Edith was growing up, there were as few as 400 year-round residents.
3: We didn't get off-island. We had no money to travel. And um, I remember sitting out in the horse chestnut tree in the front yard, turning over to this side and saying, there's the Atlantic. And I would look to the west and say, there's the Pacific. (laughs) And the whole world was right here.
2: That world, then and now, included a lot of birds. Over 300 species have been spotted on the island and its surrounding waters. That means dozens of migratory songbird species. Block Island is a critical stopover along the Atlantic Flyway, the easternmost corridor for migration in the Americas. But many of these migrants find themselves on the island by accident, blown off course during their long overnight flights.
3: The goldfinches are here in their nice
2: yellow plumage. There are plenty of bird people on the island, too, locals and visitors alike, and it seems like every one of them knows Kim Gaffett.
1: I gotta get this, sir. Sure. Good. Hey, Debbie.
2: Her phone rings constantly. She's the central hub of this spinning wheel of bird gossip. Might be her buddy Chris, who just saw at least nine glossy ibis. Might be her nephew up on a roof.
1: He called me yesterday of all the. Kim. What's happening? I just saw 12 turkey vultures. I said, don't lie down.
2: <laughs> That's a vulture joke in case it um, flew past you.
4: And if I see an odd bird, something that
2: I know you don't see too much of, I'll give her a jingle. John Littlefield was in the grade below Kim at the Block Island School. He's a roofer and a farmer, maintains people's summer houses while they're off island, hunts and fishes when he can. Standing next to his Dodge pickup, I was like, John, I've talked to a lot of people out here who are really into birds. Is that part of your, like, thing? No, are you, yeah.
4: no, absolutely not. I mean, I look for certain things at certain times of the year.
2: You caught that, right, Ari? He's not so into the birds. Not that interested. Gotcha.
4: But the cranes, the cranes are pretty cool. They got an attitude. I mean, you see lots of herons, but you don't see cranes. Cranes are, they're a different breed of cat. And they fly with their neck outstretched. Okay, so cranes and herons. Swallows. You know, we're always looking for that first swallow so that we can, like, send a text, saw so a swallow today. Cranes, herons, and swallows. Eiders, scotas, all types of uh, sea ducks. John Littlefield is like
2: bird light for Block Island.
4: We don't have squirrels. We don't have ground animals, but we got birds. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's worth it. That's worth it.
2: Ari, right, it's not just some sort of coincidence that islanders know their birds. There's actually a totally fascinating reason bird knowledge is so strong on Block Island. I want to tell you about it. But first, let's go back to the banding station where, for nearly 55 years, Kim and previously her mentor, Elise Lapham, have contributed their daily numbers to the National Bird Banding Lab database, run by the U.S. Geological Survey.
1: So it's just banders everywhere putting in a little bit of data at every station, and it all adds up into this big jigsaw puzzle.
2: Up until very recently with the advent of radio tracking technologies, almost everything that was known about bird migration and population dynamics came from the data collected by bird banders. And it's worth pointing out that also until very recently, when Kim began working for the Nature Conservancy, the hundreds of hours each season that she put into bird banding were entirely volunteer. So
1: we got the female toey, two bags of white-throated sparrows, and a bag of
2: Robins. We're in a small room attached to a summer home on the northwest end of the island. Kim hangs the bags of birds from a couple hooks on the wall.
1: Can you, did you hear that? The guy's fluttering in the bag.
2: <laughs> in another house, this might be the mudroom or pantry. Instead, the walls are lined with hand tools, maps, shelves loaded with field guides. Kim takes a yellow-rumped warbler from its bag. She holds the bird by its upper legs with an easy, confident touch.
1: The pliers have these little notches uh, for different size bands.
2: She removes an aluminum band from a string on the wall. It's the size of a sunflower seed.
1: And then I can just slip the plier with the band over the leg and then squeeze the plier, which closes the band now. And because it's in that notch, it won't crimp the band. It just closes the band.
2: I mean, and that that leg is literally like... You know, a little bit wider than a toothpick, maybe.
1: Uh, it's probably the same width as one of those round toothpicks. And now the little leg has a little band. And now this bird is individually known as two eight seven zero five two four nine three. 52493 How are
2: you possibly reading <laughs> that many numbers on that thing?
1: I know, it's pretty...
2: She measures the length of the wing with a special ruler weighs the warbler on a triple-beam scale, 11.9 grams. She's got a sheet on the counter where she records its species and sex. She can't tell its exact age, but its wing size indicates it hatched last summer. And now she checks for perhaps the most significant data point affecting this warbler's ability to reach its breeding area.
1: And then I'm going to look to see if it has fat, which it'll build up for its migration.
2: She blows against the warbler's breast, parting its feathers.
1: It's just a, a gentle human hurricane <laughs> blowing the feathers in the opposite direction so I can get a glimpse at the skin to see if there's any fat underneath the skin.
2: You can actually see tiny globules of fat under the translucent skin. Every bird Gaffet-Bands gets a fat score, ranging from 0 to 5. This warbler gets a 1, pretty lean. Then, her measurements complete... Kim steps out the door, opens her hand, and the warbler's gone. Now it's back to the bags hanging on the wall, and out comes the gorgeous ruby-crowned kinglet. This little dude probably hatched in the boreal forest of Canada. Each fall, he makes his way down the Atlantic flyway to the southeast U.S., maybe all the way to Texas or Mexico, a migration of two or 3,000 miles. Biologists say these migratory flights are among the most arduous physical feats an animal can undertake. This spring, on his way back north, the kinglet stops here on Block Island, all seven grams of him. Ben, seven grams is really small. Yeah, he's a little sprite, weighs about as much as a standard postcard, which, for 36 cents, we could have mailed from Texas to Block Island. But this kinglet and all the other migrants passing through here... They fueled the journey themselves. For the kinglet, that means eating insects primarily. But most songbirds fuel their migration, especially in the fall, on berries. Berries, really? Yep, berries. A 747 uses about 15,000 gallons of jet fuel to go 3,000 miles. A red-eyed vireo or a Swainson's thrush? These long-distance migrants get their energy from the fruits of shrubs and vines. Plants like chokecherry, arrowwood, Bayberry and Virginia
5: creeper. So one, th- one of the amazing things that happens during migration in birds is they start eating or five times more than they normally eat. So quick
2: shift here to the mainland office of biologist Scott McWilliams. He's a professor at the University of Rhode Island. He spent decades studying the ecology of stopover sites, those places along migration routes where birds pause and refuel for their journeys. So no
5: surprise, he's done a lot of his research on Block Island. The typical songbird migrant leaves at dusk the previous day and flies for much of the night without eating, without drinking. And it's using all of whatever it can put in the fuel tank and make it to a stopover site by the next morning.
2: Songbirds go through this massive metabolic transformation right before they migrate, shifting the bulk of their diet from protein-rich insects to wild berries, which are actually rich in fats. And the studies McWilliams has done on Block Island are at the cutting edge of explaining some of what Kim Gaffett and other bird banders have witnessed for decades. You see, Kim doesn't catch a bird just once during its stopover. Frequently, a bird will end up in her nets two, three, four days in a row. She calls these birds repeats, and she literally watches the fat grow on a repeat's body from a lean zero to a five. Five is like butterball. Yeah, totally. The black pole warbler is a great example. In the fall, this little songbird leaves Block Island and flies nonstop to the Caribbean, 72 straight hours over open ocean. If it runs out of fuel, it's going down. And recent discoveries have shown something incredible about these birds' condition when they arrive
5: at stopover sites after their extended flights. They've used up most of their fuels, and they've catabolized some of their gut tissue to actually provide protein. Hold up. Catabolize? Like they're digesting themselves. Uh Uh-huh.
2: It's a starvation response. Songbirds not only burn their stored fat during flight, but they often also begin to digest their own organs.
5: Scott says the first day a bird lands on the island, it'll hardly eat at all. And so what happens at those key stopover sites, like Block Island, is first of all they have to rebuild their guts because they've made a large migration.
2: They actually need to reconstruct their digestive organs before they can again gorge on fruit. And that's not the only thing the birds need to recover from. Burning huge stores of fat lets migratory birds fuel their long flights. But it requires more oxygen and poses a host of potential
5: problems. When birds burn fat, they produce much more potential oxidative damage. And because of this oxidative damage, they
2: need antioxidants.
5: There's this fundamental physiological aspect of being a critter that uses fats as fuel. So when Kim Gaffett was talking about how she can see the same individual getting fatter and fatter, we now know that it's not just how much fat, it's the quality of that fat. And it's how much antioxidants you can also deliver to your body to deal with this problem of using fats as your primary fuel.
2: What this comes down to is that antioxidant-rich native shrubs like arrowwood and bayberry are crucial for the migrants' recovery. And those plants still cover extensive portions of this small but super important island stopover.
1: So, you're going to—I'll show you what I'm doing. You're going to put the head between your peace fingers like this.
2: Back at the banding station, some guests have arrived. This happens all the time during banding season. Old friends, newly interested bird people— Kim chats with them the same as she's chatting with me. She's a natural teacher, unfazed by repetitive questions or sudden bursts of enthusiasm. Among this group of seven is Chrissy, a woman in her 20s, who's suddenly deputized by Kim to hold our ruby-crowned kinglet.
1: And then you curve the rest of your fingers around his body, so you're just making a little Ugh. finger cage. Okay. And then when you go to let it go, you put your other hand flat, put its feet down there and then release the top hand, leave that hand so it doesn't fall to the ground.
3: Okay. Aww. Bye. <laughs> <be> well done. <laughs> Have a good life. <laughs>
0: After the break, we'll find out how the year-round residents of Block Island became so knowledgeable and curious about birds. Turns out one person with an immense passion can make a difference.
5: Join BirdNote on Wednesday, March 27th for a captivating conversation about the power of photography. A panel of esteemed photographers will share their experiences, breathtaking captures, and insights into how stunning imagery can inspire action for birds. Plus, stick around to hear the winners of BirdNote's 19th Birthday Photo Contest. Register for free at birdnote.org.
0: So, some white-throated sparrows, an eastern toey, a ruby-crowned kinglet, all banded and released. Ben, you visited Block Island in the spring, so those birds were flying north. But how different are the spring and fall
2: migrations? Ari, in the fall, there are way more birds passing through. And that's because they're mostly birds that just hatched the previous summer up in Canada. It's their first time migrating, and frankly, they don't quite know what they're doing. It's a lot easier for them to get blown off course and end up on Block Island. What about the ones who don't find the island? They're shark food. A huge percentage of first-year birds don't make it. That's millions and millions of songbirds lost every year to predation, the ocean, the lights of the big city. But in the spring, every bird passing through has made the journey north to south at least once. There's fewer of them, but they're survivors. They know what they're doing. So why does
0: Kim Gaffa do it? All those volunteer hours... Why does she ban the birds?
2: Well, the first answer is pretty straightforward. Science, data, the contribution to shared knowledge. But
1: I really don't have a good answer for why I do this and why I've done this for as long as I have.
2: Kim's life in many ways has been built around the seasonal work of bird banding.
1: Every job I ever took was dependent on having the free time in the spring and the fall to do that. And so consequently, I never really had a full-time job until I was about 60, but whatever.
2: (laughs) Bird banding is repetitive, to say the least, but only once could I get Kim to even sort of complain.
1: You know, when you're in the six weeks of the fall and you've had your 200th catbird and it's, you know, it's whining in your ear and you're like, could we get on with it? (laughs) Could we have a few warblers to kind of brighten up the day?
2: Then she told me how psyched she is every time she hears her first catbird of the year. So there are these subtle, cumulative joys that bind Kim to this seasonal effort. But the bonds also have to do with the people Kim's worked with, especially her teacher and friend, Elise Lapham. And then there's another woman, Elizabeth Dickens, often referred to fondly as the Bird Lady of Block Island.
1: She started uh, around uh, 1912, making a daily list of the birds that she saw in her little corner, in the southwest corner of the island, and became a self-taught ornithologist, and known in the region, communicated with other ornithologists.
2: For 50 years, Elizabeth Dickens kept that daily record.
1: Kim never met Dickens,
2: different generations, but Edith Blaine did.
3: So I was six and a half before I ever got to school, and I couldn't wait to get there. And one of the real joys was Elizabeth Dickens, of course. She was stern-looking. She was sturdy. She had beautiful white hair when I knew her, and it was always pulled up on top of her head. And each month we had bird study with her. You know how I said
2: earlier that there's a specific reason why so many islanders know so much about birds? Here it is, bird study. Every kid who grew up on the island had it for most of the last hundred years.
3: (laughs) I went off to school one year for a semester. And the first thing I asked was, when do you have bird study? And he looked at me and said, what are you talking about, bird study? I said, well, that's what I've always had. And I thought, of course, the whole world had that.
2: As a girl, Edith Blaine's biggest delight was a yearly dinner and bird walk for her and a few other girls hosted at Dickens' home. There, Dickens kept an ever-expanding collection of taxidermied island birds. That collection still exists. Over 170 birds in a series of glass cabinets outside the fourth grade classroom at the Block Island School. And even after Elizabeth Dickens died, bird study continued. The current teacher? Kim Gaffett
1: By teaching bird study to generations of kids, I, I really think that that set in us this sort of ethic of caring about birds, and then by default about the landscape that they lived in.
2: Kim takes her students on bird walks, and she uses specimens from Dickens' bird collection to study comparative anatomy and evolution. Back when Dickens rode her horse and buggy from her homestead into town, the threats to birds were pretty high. Excitement at the appearance of a snowy owl, for instance, would often quickly be followed by shooting the bird for sport. But the stakes now are higher than ever. Here's biologist Scott McWilliams again.
5: Yeah, it's been very well documented in the last 10 years that there's some very dramatic, very scary population declines of songbirds at large.
2: It's a fact echoed in Kim's data, which shows fewer numbers of migrants passing through Block Island during recent decades.
5: It's especially scary because if there's population declines, then you get fewer and fewer and fewer migrants in the fall that are being produced that can make that migration.
2: With those declining numbers in mind, I want to take us briefly down Corn Neck Road and up past the airport to the southwest side of the island, not far from where Elizabeth Dickens lived. It's a place called Rodman's Hollow.
6: So we're, we're, we're standing on a trail that is surrounded by grassland and coastal shrubland.
2: Scott Cummings. He's the associate state director for the Nature Conservancy in Rhode Island.
6: This is a part of about 700 acres of conservation land, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's about 10% or a little bit more than 10% of the island. Preserving Rodman's hollow from
2: development took a big fight back in the 1970s. Cummings says that was a turning point for the residents of Block Island, and it's made a critical difference to songbirds as well.
6: There's tremendous mortality their first year migrating. So if we can put back hundreds of thousands of birds into the system, there's actually a real... Benefit.
2: So everything we've heard about so far, windblown migrants, antioxidant-rich native berries, generations of islanders interested in birds, they're all dependent upon this, open land. Because despite the fact that over 500 houses have been built on Block Island in the last 40 years, residents have largely succeeded in strategically preserving open space.
6: Uh, the planning board set a goal of 50% open space. And that was years ago. You know, that was early 90s when I think there was maybe 18% conserved. That's a pretty bold statement.
2: Kim Gaffet was actually on the planning board at that time. And Ari, do you want to know the percentage of land currently under conservation on Block Island? Yeah, how much? 46%. That is incredible. I don't want to suggest that the conservation efforts on this tiny island could turn around the massive decline in songbird populations. But you don't hear a lot of ecological success stories these days. Both Kim and Scott Cummings said their efforts on Block Island could serve as a model for how other coastal communities might preserve critical habitat along the Atlantic flyway.
6: It's a a true beacon for conservation and and a real success story on what can be done if a community controls its own destiny.
2: Okay, so we're back at the banding station. It's mid-May, the height of the migratory season. Anari, this morning's guests include four boys from the Block Island School, 7th graders mostly, all of whom had bird study with Kim a few years ago. Their names are Finn, Chase, Barrett, and Reese. And after this whole story, you might be anticipating a crew of kids thrumming with bird enthusiasm. I am. They must be stoked. But I need to remind you that these are 7th grade boys. Oh, say no more. Way too cool to get excited about a warbler. It's like the ultimate test of Kim Gaffet's persuasive abilities. First, she recruits Finn as her scribe.
1: Uh, you can write Toey, T-O-W-H-E-E.
2: She holds a bird up against the boys' ears so they can hear its speedy heartbeat. She shows them the fat on the breast of a black pole warbler. But it's not until they're out by the mist nets, running, searching for captured songbirds, that something is truly activated in them.
1: What? had a catbird, I think, or something like that. Is that a oh, catbird? I'm going to look up catbird on my phone real quick. How's it going, buddy? Catbird. You just pooped. You might not want to. Oh, to yuck!
2: Finn, Kim's scribe, now becomes her assistant untangler, which amazes me because Kim allows almost no adults to attempt to untangle the birds. Now she stands beside Finn and this catbird, coaching him through a five-minute job she could have completed herself
1: in 20 seconds. Go in, go in from this side. Do your, ba- do your bird banner haul. There you go. Nice, good grip that way, and then try to get the off the top. Okay, hang on to it. We're going to put it in the bag for me. Go in there, buddy.
2: Minutes later, at another set of nets, Finn spots a truly extraordinary catch.
1: Oh, my gosh! Oh, there's a a hummingbird! Hang on a second, okay?
2: Kim does the delicate work of untangling this female, ruby-throated hummingbird. And then, to my immense envy, she puts the bird in Chase's hand.
1: How do I hold it? You're going to just hold it like that and just put your whole thing hand around it and then take it away from the net. Oh, my gosh. Can I try? No, let it go. Okay. Wait, I want to hold it. No, no, no. then no. no. You can have no. it go. On. No. If I gonna, pet it, it's I not, not going it. to work. You can pet it. Uh I feel it vibrating in my hand. Bye-bye.
2: These boys are Block Island's next generation. But growing up, it's a mysterious thing. Who knows if they'll remember any hard facts or skills from their encounters with Kim Gaffet. But it's hard to imagine they'll ever forget what it's like to hold in their hands a fragile, winged life. And what it feels like to let it go.
0: On Block Island, Kim Gaffett, her assistants, and sometimes 7th graders, hold these incredible migratory birds in their hands. But next time on Threatened, it's the hands of people from long ago that are helping dozens of bird species today. And all the birds that we're hearing are, are probably birds that enslaved people would have heard. That's next week. This episode was produced by Ben James and me, Ari Daniel. It was edited by Caitlin Pierce of the Rough Cut Collective. Audio mixed by Rob Byers, Johnny Vince Evans, and Michael Rayfield of Final Final V2. Our theme song and original music were composed by Ian Koss, with additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Threatened is a production of BirdNote and overseen by content director Allison Wilson with production assistance from Sam Johnson. You can find our show notes with additional resources, BirdNote's other podcasts, and much more at birdnote.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time.